Is the status quo a haven? A port of call where you wait out this relentless storm of unprecedented change. But if you do, if you put down anchor, are you taking away your mobility and your flexibility, your ability to adapt? Are you just sitting there, taking on more water, struggling to stay afloat? I've never been a fan of the status quo. I'm not sure why. I guess the easy answer is, well, there's always a better way. And in the face of change like we're dealing with today, we need to approach circumstances in a much different way. I think there's a great quote that says, what got us here today won't get us to where we need to go tomorrow. But I also wonder if I just had a chip on my shoulder. I remember being a teenager working as a part-time stock keeper, and I drove my boss to absolute distraction and dissatisfaction. I was always bringing them new ideas on how to merchandise products. And I always got back, that's not the way we do things here. So maybe I am a contrarian. Maybe I've always looked for inefficiencies as a toehold in an opportunity and relevancy. I know I'm not alone in that case. I know that entrepreneurs and innovators and activists, explorers and justice warriors do in fact challenge and disrupt the norm. The saying goes that while diversity is a fact, inclusion is a choice. But what does inclusion really mean? What does it look like in organizations? Diversity is the different perspective. Inclusion is the environment we create that makes it safe to speak up. Now, looking back at my career, I wish I could have done things with more humility and tact versus bold declarations of having a better idea or a better mousetrap. But that insight comes from age and the gift of reflection versus youth and the brashness of inflection. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today offers you the best of both worlds. She's a challenger to the status quo, but one with grace, one who pushes boundaries, opens minds, and creates opportunities for those who don't compete on a level playing field. She does so with conviction, courage, and not as an armchair critic, but someone who lives by her example. She shows us that diversity is a fact, but inclusion a choice, and advocates for those who deserve it. She serves both our country and our communities. Her name is Natalie Marcusan. Natalie, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. We're going to get to your 12 years of military service to our country and as a member of our Air Force, a navigator on C-130 Hercules. But first, I want to know more about the young Natalie growing up. There's a story that I read, which I love. As a teenager and part of a family who were devout Catholics, you took it upon yourself to write your bishop, wondering why there was no males at the altar. How did that come about? I'm an observer. Grew up with in a family of four children, an older sister and two younger brothers. And it wasn't lost on me that my two younger brothers got to serve um, as altar servers. So they got, they got to do the fun things, you know, ring the bells, carry the cross. And I didn't see anybody on the altar that looked like me. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, so why not ask, why can't I do it? And so I wrote to the bishop of our archdiocese and, you know, effectively said it, it sort of doesn't make sense to me that, you know, the Holy Spirit descends <laughs> and inspires somebody to serve, but because they have different body parts, they're excluded from the party. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, he wrote me back in the response, you know, it was, it's the typical Catholic response, which drives me crazy, frankly, which is equal, but different. 
that that is always used by people who have the control and the power. Oh, it's equal, but different. And, you know, suggested that I could serve in other ways, which I did. There was always a part of me that said that wasn't fair. And, and now, you know, just recently this came up. I was talking to a colleague. She said, Oh, yeah, she, you know, she's probably 15 years younger than me, 20 years and said, Oh, yeah, she was an altar server. And I thought, Oh, you know, they did it, 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 it changed. It didn't change for me, but eventually it changed. So it's just a, a good reminder that there's always opportunity to, to question and ask why. Family of devout Catholics, the, the church really doesn't like people ruffling the, the feathers. Uh, <laughs> how did your parents react to uh, Natalie taking it upon herself to change uh, the Vatican? <laughs> to change the Vatican. I think you're giving me way too much, uh, way too much credit there. Uh, while we were practicing Catholics, my parents also believed that it was all of our, and certainly taught us that it was our responsibilities to actually make the world a better place. They were quite supportive that, you know, they reminded us all um, about the importance of being respectful, but certainly emphasized like a, a recurring theme was ask a question. If, if you don't understand, ask why, push boundaries, uh, although do it obviously respectfully. Now you're the second child of four and there's a lot of studies that have been talked about, you know, the pecking order in the families. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and the firstborn is wired for success, but you kind of were wired that way. I mean, you wanted to push boundaries. Did, did that come from that kind of yeah. conversations with your family? I mean, what was the dinner table like? What was the parenting like that sort of said, this is your life, go after it. Yeah. And I love that you brought up sort of the, how children fulfill certain roles. And I think you're right. So my, my sister was the, you know, the rule follower and I was the exact opposite. Ironically, she played with blocks. I played with dolls and yet our choices in life were completely different. She chose nursing and I chose the Air Force, you know, and everything I've done has been non-traditional for women. But, but our dinner tables, you know, the best example I have is that if you wanted the butter passed at the Marcuson dinner table, you better have had a really good reason as to why you wanted that butter passed and you better have been prepared to defend. So it was, it was loud and lively. There were six of us every single night. So dinner was a, a protected time in our family where we all came together and we could talk about what was happening in the world and what was happening in everybody's lives. When we would have guests over, they would often be almost shell-shocked because of the loudness and the passion with which we would debate. And name anything. You can name any topic and somebody would have a contrarian view. That was the time to, to really get it all out in the open. And we did. What do you think about today? Because when I look at, you know, family conversation. Again, my ability to be a voyeur in this case is when I'm at restaurants and they're out, but I see parents and kids on their screens. They're not having that debate. They're not having that conversation. I mean, I have to believe that what you got was you learned an ability to critical thinking and collaboration and, and divide and conquer and find out who your allies are. I mean, these are essential skills in life. Yep. Why do you think we're losing that being intoxicated by the screen? I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, interestingly at my dinner table, because we, I've now reproduced, um, although I only have one child, um, have reproduced the same, um, situation. I think that we've been lulled into this love affair that uh, connectivity, the amount of connectivity matters. 
you're connected to everybody and everything around the world when you have that device in your hand. It's a misnomer that the quality of the interaction digitally is not the same as the quality of the interaction when you are live with a, with another human being. I love what you said about critical thinking skills, because that is where values, morals, and those critical thinking skills are established because it's such a safe space for children to learn how to challenge and fail and not challenge respectfully, and then being reminded about how to do it in a different way to really be um, effective. And I hire people at all different stages in their career, and I certainly see it. There are at times a lack of those critical thinking skills. People are waiting to be fed information as opposed to just thinking about the information that they are getting and then assimilating it and making a decision to move forward. It's interesting too that, you know, if we're talking about it nowadays, you just get a, a ribbon for showing up and participating. Yeah, but with right. social media, everything you say is validated. You know, I mean, the whole idea is I'm with like-minded people and like-minded content and I'm getting all these likes as opposed to, I have to imagine there have been times at that dinner table where a young Natalie put across a contrarian point of view and convinced somebody to join her. It wasn't a click or a thumbs up. It was based on argument. It was based on thought. Thought, logic, tenacity, commitment, and not blind commitment, right? Being open to, "Mm, maybe I don't have all the facts. So what questions do I need to ask in order to get the information that I need? Look, you know, there were lots of times that I fail. I continue, you know, you use the word grace. I love that word. Uh, If you look it up, it is defined as elegance of form, manner, or behavior. Just think about that, elegance of form, manner, behavior. It's one of my personal rules that when the universe gives you an opportunity to show grace, take it. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. There is probably no institution that gives ordinary people so much power over others as the military, with its chain of command structure and insistence on unquestioning obedience. So I just felt like my power was taken and because of the culture of the army itself, I really did not feel comfortable coming forward to my chain of command. It seems as if the leadership just doesn't get it. My guest today is Natalie Markison. She rarely takes no for an answer and has a long and successful history of pushing boundaries as it relates to the roles of women and others who are underserved in our communities. Natalie, in 1987, you make a big life decision. I mean, I have to believe the path at that time is conventional education, but you apply to the Royal Military College and join the Canadian Air Force. What motivated that move? Because back then, a woman in that college and in the Air Force was a bit of an anomaly. I think it was happenstance. Um, and happenstance in that, in uh, something um, really important happened in 1987 in the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal um, forced the Canadian military to open up what are called operational roles. And, and operational roles are those which could serve in conflict, conflict areas. So they were forced to open up those operational roles to women after, I don't know, seven or eight or nine year testing period. So I literally um, knew that Royal Military College existed because I had an older sister who had applied uh, to other universities. So I knew it existed. She didn't apply to RMC. Um, and I remember walking by 
a recruiting office one day in Hamilton, Ontario, because that's where I grew up. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Let's pop in. And then I remember going in and every single recruiting agency, I think in the, in the country wanted to have, wanted to be among the first to enroll women in those non-traditional roles. And so they just started at, well, are you good at math? And, you know, can you do this? And and so the next thing I knew, I was like, well, let's see where this will take me. And remember, I had always pushed boundaries. I was comfortable. I was, you know, my sister followed the rules. I was the rebel. So I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And And one thing led to another. And they said, you know, have you ever thought about flying? And I thought, well, let's uh, no, but let's see what that's like. And so it just sort of happened. If I ask you a really honest question, because somebody that pushes boundaries often becomes part of your persona. That's what I expect out of the rule breaker. How much of this was just you going home and dropping this as sort of a bomb on your parents' lap that said, hey, guess what? I'm not going off to McMaster University or I'm going into the Air Force. Uh, you clearly study people uh, because <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. Going to university was never a choice in our family. Like from the time we could breathe, we were told, oh, what university will you be going to? So I knew that there had to be that university and and I'm academically inclined. Um, but for sure it was, oh, let's see. Let's see what mama and papa are going to say about this, without a doubt, without a doubt. You not only study math and physics and they offer you the opportunity to, you know, to get involved in the clouds, you become a navigator of a C-130 Hercules. In eight years, you fly search and rescue operations and support Canadians in combat zones. I mean, this is one thing to kind of, that would be fun. <laughs> That's a dangerous profession and one that takes you away from family and, yeah. and puts you on a completely different course in life. So yeah. tell me a little bit about how that all manifested and, and what you learned when you were navigating these Hercules. There's a science aspect and math aspect um, to navigating. As you can imagine, lots of, lots of calculations. When I started flying in um, 1992, you know, this thing called GPS, nah, we weren't so sure about that. When I would do oceanic crossings, I used almost exclusively um, celestial navigation. So stars, sun, and moon. And you can imagine there's lots of calculations. I have a an aptitude uh, for technology. Uh, you know, I knew that I was either going to study science or engineering. Um, so that was a, that was a very natural um, evolution. What I wasn't prepared for and had to... Uh, learn to cope really quickly was the isolation, quite frankly, the emotional isolation of being among a, you know, a really small minority of people like me, women, whether it was in, you know, military college. And when I started military college in uh, 88, it was out in uh, Vancouver Island at uh, the Royal Roads Military College. And women had only been at the school for four years. You know, it was a cultural shift. And certainly, um, my first, my very first search and rescue squadron, I, for a period of time, I was the only woman on squadron. So you can imagine, you know, you have your morning briefings. And, How many people are in a squadron? Uh, it depends on the size of the squadron, but it would be pilots, navigators, engineers. So, so you would have well over a hundred people, I would say, would be a smallish squadron and certainly, you know, multitudes, you know, maybe double, I guess, in a, in a larger tactical squadron. And, and I, I did both. Yeah. You know, we write, read about the military. We've certainly heard about Hockey Canada, the sort of these toxic male climates. And this is not anti-male, but just these places where, you know, this one gender becomes the ruling force. How hard was it for you to deal with? Because I have to believe that some of the people wanted you to pay a price for kind of breaking the status quo. 
I could probably tell you stories that would make your toes curl, quite frankly, about, you know, things that I was exposed to and, and had to, um, and had to deal with. I know that, you know, those things happen and they exist and it's not difficult for me to, uh, accept, um, the reality of, of those situations that you described when they happen either in the military or outside of the military. Look, I think whenever uh, power is concentrated among a group of people who all look the same and have the same thoughts and ideologies. Um, this type of abuse um, is a is a real risk. All the more reason why, uh, whether it is sporting organizations or the military or business organizations, to have leadership that is reflective of the communities in which those organizations operate or serve is vitally important because uh, it is only through the collective lens, right? We all look through a different lens. It's the aggregation of that experience that creates better environments for organizations and people to prosper. It's simple. You know, when I started, I talked about it's easy now in my stage of my career to look back, but you know, at that young age, was there ever a time where you felt it wasn't worth it? Because I'm also flying into this wall, this yeah. because of my gender or my ethnicity that I wasn't welcome. Did you ever just want to quit sometimes? Yes. I would be lying if I didn't say that those, um, uh, those events took place. I, I remember being in, you know, probably first year at, at military college and, um, for a period of time, you couldn't even call home. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting emotional just thinking about it now. And this is 30 years ago. Uh, but I think about the 19 year old and I remember calling my, my parents, my mother in particular, and just crying uncontrollably. And I remember it, it happening before Christmas. I was able to come home for Christmas. And I remember her saying to me, that's not normal. A 19 year old, you know, should not be away at school and be impacted in the way that I saw you were clearly impacted. But she's in fact giving you permission to quit and you didn't quit. Oh, no, no, no. I was not quitting. Oh, no, no. To, to quit was to, to accept defeat was to give more power. I don't know if that's being tenacious or just being stupid, but there was no way, there was no way, um, that I was going to give more power to the very people that I was trying to affect change with. Not a chance. And my last question before we leave the time that you served the country, what can we be doing as a country to better acknowledge and care for the people that signed up to serve our country? So I think that it all starts with education. You know, I think it's part of the Canadian identity. We either don't appreciate or don't understand or, or, or simply don't know where so many uh, Canadians who are in uniforms are serving um, around the world today. Um, and I don't think we talk about it enough. You know, I was, I was flying down to the States just a couple of weeks ago and, you know, on the airline, it was, it was an American airline um, that I was flying on. You know, they invite service personnel retired or active to board an airplane first. You know, if you're at a, an amusement park, they ask them, they ask them to stand. There's, um, there's a greater connection to the sacrifices that service people, and, and I really want to put a call out to families because it's not just the service people. They leave 
and the people left behind to sort of hold down the fort, um, the families are, are an integral part of that whole dance and that whole community. Um, so, I, you know, I just encourage people to ask questions, do some reading, just find out more about what it's like in that vocation. And it is a vocation. It's not a line of work. It's a vocation. Nobody gets rich. Uh, nobody gets rich, you know, economically doing it. Although I would suggest that the richness that I have far surpasses um, any economic benefits that, that an, you know, another job or role might give me. When we return, Natalie leaves the Air Force, but she wants to continue her mission to never quit, to never give those who abuse their power more power. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live, and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. Flexible work schedules so that dual working families can still participate in school drop-offs and pickups. It's flexible stat holidays so that a Christian celebration is equally recognized as a Muslim or Sikh or Hindu or Aboriginal one. Or investing in technology which transcends geography and enables working efficiently wherever and whenever team members need to work. All of these are examples of the choices organizations make every day. Today, my guest is Natalie Markison, former member of our Canadian military, and today in the role of Global Head of Procurement at RBC, she's working to level the playing field for all. Natalie, you leave the Air Force, great accolades, people love you there, you're obviously incredibly talented, but you choose to go for an MBA. How did that come about? I don't know if I was loved. I was respected. I was respected in the military, but I know I made a lot of people uncomfortable. So MBA, once again, I think it was less happenstance, maybe more process of elimination. Um, I knew I had to do something different. Uh, there aren't navigators in commercial uh, flying. Um, I decided to resign my commission, uh, not because I didn't love the work or because I didn't love the people, because you know it's a very special uh, time in my life. Uh, but rather because I would deploy, little, you know, a hundred plus days a year. I knew I wanted a family, had not met my husband um, at that time, but, but wanted to be present, you know, for the dinner table conversations. I wanted to be present um, with a family that I wanted to build. I had served. It was time to do something else. I considered uh, med school, teacher's college and business school. I don't like hospitals sick people. You know, I don't have enough empathy. So that wasn't, um, I don't have a lot of patience and my mother's a teacher. You, you must have patience if you're going to teach. So I thought, well, okay, I guess business school is left. And you know, you talked a little bit about how do you go from flying airplanes to, to, to business or business school. And, and there's actually more of a connection than a lot of people realize. So when I was flying an airplane, I would have all sorts of input radar, airspeed, air pressure, fuel, uh, weather. And my job as a navigator was to take all that input, to process it, aggregate it, simulate it, and then make a decision about where I was going to steer the airplane in order to get from point A to point B. It's not unlike almost everything you do or business does, right? We have all sorts of input. We know what the strategy is, what our end goal is, what we want to be. Um, we take all that input 
We do the same thing that I did when I was flying. And then we make a decision and a choice uh, about moving forward towards a strategy. So the transferable skills, those critical thinking skills that you talked about at, at the opening, you know, it, it was sort of the, the, the culmination of all of that training um, and, and just transferring them into a different role. So you go to MBA school and you're, again, a different path than most people that must have been in your class. I mean, they would have gone through the undergraduate, maybe some business experience. You went through, you know, military college in the Air Force. Did that set you up for success because you had things in your knapsack that others didn't? Or did you have to defend who you are because you weren't like everybody else once again? <laughs> You're right. I wasn't. I wasn't like everybody else. You know, I think that the military gave me perspective, continues to give me perspective that other people uh, didn't have. As I've aged, what I've learned is that the those experiences in the 90s um, when I was flying have fundamentally shaped how I think, you know, almost at a cellular level. The connections that I have in my brain are different than what other people have simply because of my experiences. Um, And sometimes I have to dial that back, but it does give me tremendous perspective. Hardships, you know, outside of the military are nothing compared to the hardships and the challenges that I faced in in those circumstances while I was flying. It's a lifelong, I think, adjustment, quite frankly. I tend to say, you know, I idle at 75 kilometers an hour. I can go from, from nothing to a lot really, really quickly. But once again, you, you have to understand the environment in which I matured as an adult, right? Um, you know, whether it was an emergency on an aircraft or flying into war zones, you know, it, it, that that's a protective mechanism and it exists to this day. So I sometimes have to mellow that out a little bit. Jim Estel, who I just interviewed, a brilliant entrepreneur, talks about, you know, the power of wild. While he's going for a walk, he'll also have a meeting. But he said, it's also very important that you walk in step with the person you're walking with versus try to set the pace. Do you struggle with setting the pace given that you have found a way to do these mission critical decisions that were really life decisions and finding the right pace in a world where you're not flying a Hercules into a combat zone? So first of all, what's really important to me is creating a leadership team and a leadership environment in which my leaders have the internal fortitude to to slow me down. They don't think the way that I think. I remember during the the war in Yugoslavia, I was running a multinational airlift operation out of an airbase in Italy. Italian um, technicians, I had Greek flight crews and the Canadians were running the whole thing. And the American general came down to, to look at our operations. And one of the things that he said to me was, you know, Natalie, if I don't now, he used the word violent opposition. I don't know that I'd use the word violent, uh, but passionate. He said, if I don't have violent opposition at my leadership table, I know I have the wrong leaders. That is 30 years ago, and I can still picture him saying it to me, and it has stuck in my brain. And so I use that, right? If I do not create an environment in which uh, people are willing to challenge me, then I know I haven't, I, I don't, I may not have the right leaders. You get your MBA, go into consulting, tell us, then you end up going to RBC to head up global procurement. And why are you there? You form the Canadian Aboriginal and Minority Supplier Council. I think RBC was a founding partner. What brought you to RBC? What gave you the sort of passion to create a council that once again 
levels the playing field for all of the Natalies out there that don't necessarily have a seat at the table? I can't take credit for founding the council. RBC, before I joined RBC, was one of the founding members. One of our values is that that we, you know, serve the communities in, in which we operate um, and have a very, very um, strong commitment to the academic concept of diversity and then diversity in all its forms, you know, leadership diversity, you know, team member diversity and, and third party um, supplier diversity. I do serve on the board, I'm passionate about, I guess, you know, now that we've talked, really extending what I was doing back in the 80s, right? It wasn't a level playing field for me. I couldn't serve on the altar. I know what that feels like. It doesn't feel good you know, or, or first generation, you know, female aviator. I know what it feels like to be the, the one person out that doesn't look like everybody else. That's not a, an intellectual that that's in your gut. And when you feel that, then empathy is, is being able to feel what other people feel. And I just think it's part of all of our obligations to leave the world in a better place in which we found it. If I can help to do that, um, for business owners and entrepreneurs who don't look like the, the, you know, the usual business owner entrepreneur, then quite frankly, it's my obligation to do so. And, and that's the perspective that I have. So global procurement, I mean, from a capitalist point of view is you're going to help us find the best suppliers at the best price. Everything I've read about you is it's not so much about price, although you want great value, it's really about the company you keep. So I'm glad that you said that because you're right. I, as a purchaser, a buyer in that transaction, I don't actually control price. The The other company controls. I control who, I control when, and I control how many uh, we might uh, purchase. So we look at total value and value takes many, many forms in terms of furthering and helping to create a really robust marketplace, right? That That is designing products and services that will meet the needs um, of those communities. Well, the only way that we know how to do that, you know, really well is if we engage everybody who's part of that community. And I think you opened by saying diversity is a fact, inclusion, right? We often say inclusion is a choice. Inclusion are the mechanisms or the environment that you create so that the forms of diversity can live um, and can be prosperous. And I see it almost as simple math, you know, diversity on a leadership team. I, I said this recently in a town hall. To me, it's simple math. If you have a leadership group that all looks the same, uh, either gender or ethnicity, then mathematically speaking, it is unlikely that you have the best because there are the best in all forms of diversity, whether it's women or visible minorities or, or people with disabilities. There are the best of those communities and you haven't brought them to the table. So mathematically, you've taken less than best because they all look the same and given more opportunities to them. So it's mathematical, but it also feeds the soul. Let me create some opposition to you because that sounds like that's how you're wired. There'd be people that would say, yes, but. If we just apply it as a mathematical formula, for example, quotas, what we are doing is much as we're pursuing being inclusive, we're also in fact being exclusive because your number might not be called even if you are the best because you aren't representative of a certain gender or ethnicity. It's an interesting argument and it is not lost on me that in 1987 or 1988, I, I, 
probably filled a quota uh, number. Um, what I often say, though, is if profound change was going to happen organically, it would have happened by now. So, you know, the number of times I've heard uh, when we think about women in leadership roles, whether it's board of directors or C-suite, right? The number of times I've heard, oh, we're grooming, oh, we're building a pipeline. I, I literally have said, you got to stop saying that because you sound ridiculous. That pipeline has been in progress for 30 plus years. If you are still building it and in 30 years, you have not made a material movement in that direction, you better do something different because, you know, they say that the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So the fact that we still have, and the numbers, you know, they are what they are, challenges in bringing women into those positions of power or other visible minorities into those positions of power says that we actually need to do something differently. And I think that that's what um, those targets uh, actually induce people to do. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Again, as I traveled the world I had to ask myself, is there anywhere in the world that we have true equality for women? And the answer is no. Women are so underrepresented in the technology sector, and yet tech is pervasive. It is changing our lives. And so women have to be able to have their great ideas come forward, not just have a seat at the table, but have their great ideas come forward to help change society. My guest today is Natalie Markison. She rarely takes no for an answer and has a long and successful history of pushing boundaries as it relates to the roles of women and others who are underserved in our communities. I also want to talk to you a little bit about some of your influencers. You talk about not so much Bill Gates, but Melinda Gates and some of the work that she's doing. Yeah. And I happen to be a massive fan of what she's doing. I think her and Michelle Obama and a few others are really teaming up. Talk to me about why you see her as such a role model for not only a torch for women to follow, but in fact, a torch for capitalism to follow. She's fascinating. I was once, there's a you know documentary um, about inside Bill's brain or something like that. She's in the documentary and I often say I was more interested in what was in her brain. So she is a, you know, a, a computer scientist, I think, by education. So, you know, followed a, and, and a little bit older than me. So, so I walked on her shoulders. She, uh, she followed that path. She could live a life of leisure if she so, you know, chose to do so, I guess, um, and has decided to do something different. And she takes up causes that quite frankly aren't sexy, right? Like sanitation. Like who wants to go to a cocktail party and talk about sanitation and or eradicating polio? Um, I think, you know, malarial drugs, those aren't sexy topics. Um, and yet she's committed to doing it. And what she brings is a unique perspective of a woman's experience. Um, I was once uh, speaking and, and mentioned, you know, in, in the topic of sanitation, uh, Bill was looking at how can we, you know, produce that for $2. And Melinda's input was, well, when we're thinking about creating a, you know, inexpensive toilet um, for sanitation, it needs to be, you know, the walls need to be high enough so a woman feels protected. And it needs to be big enough because if she has a child, she won't leave the child outside, right? So for, for 50% of the population to use it, it has to address their needs. That's inclusion. 
That's the value of inclusion. And she's not defaulting to the economics and she's not defaulting to the status quo. She's actually challenging people to think of things in a different way uh, because she's experienced the world in a different way. So Natalie Marcuson, you're pushed boundaries. You continue to push boundaries and you have so much passion, which I love. How do you want your daughter to talk about you 30 or 40 years from now about my mom did what? What would you want her to say? I don't, <laughs> it's it's such a difficult question for me because uh, I, I have to be honest, it's never about me. Um, I have made the choices that I've made so that my daughter and, you know, the, the, the daughters of the people listening or those who um, feel on the margins or, or, you know, perceive themselves to be on the margins, don't have to be on the margins anymore. It's never like, honestly, it, it, it really isn't um, ever about me. So what I, I guess what I would like her to say is that my mother loved me. That's amazing. You know, I always end my show with the three things I've learned. And, and the first one is, I think the greatest gift you ever had was that Bishop writing you back and saying equal, but different. And you realizing that that is just a load of rhetoric and spending your life saying, no, let's focus on being equal. And I think that is wonderful. I love the way you describe grace as elegance formed by manner and behavior. And I think that we've lost grace in society. We hide behind our social medias and we send out these spitballs and we feel so protected in our like-minded castles where everybody likes the same content and refuses to change when they can say the pipeline has been you know, in place for 30 years or we're grooming it. It's that safety in numbers versus realizing that they're missing the opportunity. I'm adding to that just your whole concept of using math to explain diversity and inclusion is such a brilliant way to do it. The final one, though, I want to stand for is because this is Remembrance Day as well, is that you served our country. You know, as much as you had to power your way through a some, sometimes a very toxic culture, you talk about it with the pride, but you also remind us that as Canadians, we do not do enough. We do not get people to stand in lines in amusement parks. We don't let people that have served our country first on the plane. And more importantly, we don't recognize it's not just them serving, but the families that are left holding the pieces together behind is something a very special thing for all of us to remind ourselves of as opposed to just once a year saying it. So Natalie, for all of this, I am so happy that your parents encouraged that letter and that you have, you can call it by chance, I think by calculated means have found a way to shatter the stereotype and smash glass ceilings and, and do it with grace. So thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Scared. In action, I told one young fellow in, in high school here, yes, he said, were you ever scared? I said, you're scared all the time. <laughs> all the time, night and day, yeah. This radio show and podcast first aired on November 11th, Remembrance Day. It's one of the reasons I chose Natalie Marcuson because of her service to our country. I know many people wear poppies and I hope many others will be attending the celebrations the acknowledgements that will be happening across our country. If I can ask you for a moment to think back to the times when Canadian men and women went off to do combat. The sacrifices they made, the sacrifices their families made and our country made to give us what we have today. And I sometimes wonder if we take for granted our freedom to speak, our freedom to practice any religion we want to, our freedom to protest, if we reflect on what we have as a country, 
our vast intellectual and natural resources, our capabilities. They fought for Canada, and yet the country that we have today, why are we letting it become so divided? East versus West, left versus right, conservative versus liberal. Why do we fear new people coming in from all over the world with courage and conviction who want to start over and create a great life? If we only embrace the positivities and the possibilities, the Canada that our forebearers fought for, the Canada that they wanted us to have, is the Canada we can have. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. May all of our fallen rest peacefully. May we who love them find peace and understanding in their sacrifice. <laughs> 